All uh, right. So the Yankees yeah. just had a grand slam to take what? A four-run lead over the Mets in the top of the 10th? A four-run lead, top of the eighth. Oh, top of the eighth. Pretty decisive. That's pretty decisive. That is a pretty good segue into this intro. So, guys, I apologize for my live reaction, but you are about to listen to a great, I would say, a great podcast with Dr. Andrew Jacobs, who is arguably the pioneer of sports psychology. He got into the sports psychology field 40 years ago. 40 years ago. And in this podcast, he goes into what the sports psychology and what the psychology field themselves were like 40 years ago. If you think there was a stigma towards mental health now, oh man, you are in a treat. 40 years ago, there are some great stories. I don't want to give it away. And with Dr. Jacobs, he brought along his good pal, Steve Hag, who is not only a proponent of mental health and sports psychology, but has benefited sports psychology to the point where he won a gold medal and a silver medal in the 1984 summer olympics in los angeles LA. hey a real american hero a real american hero so guys what impre- impressed me the most was that these guys worked together in the lead up to those olympic games almost 40 years ago and they're still in touch they're still good friends you'll hear their banter back and forth Great and answer. I love Great the fact that answer. Dr. Jacobs, he's a, he's a sports psychologist and his focus is on the individual. It's not just on performance, um, but he helps with the performance and the proofs in the pudding. They won, uh, I think he says, nine medals uh, that the cyclist team won in that during the 84 Olympics. Oh, yeah. No, total game changer. You know, bringing uh, a sports psychologist onto that team. Mental fitness. You know? Yeah, I mean, it really elevated what those teams uh, that, that allowed sports psychologists to be a part of it. It really elevated what they were able to do competitively. And uh, Dr. Jacobs is going to tell, tell us all about that. And he's going to have Steve co-sign everything. It's going to be pretty fun. <laughs> it's not often you get to talk to a gold medalist um, or someone who's a downhill skier, a, uh, a cyclist, an adrenaline junkie, it sounds like. But it was an exciting conversation. No, it was, man. And it, and it was also cool to see like kind of how sports psychology and psychiatry has evolved, you know, like we were able to almost get like a history lesson uh, from Dr. Jacobs. He kind of took us through the last 30 to 40 years of the evolution of sports uh, and mental health care. And so it was really, really exciting. What I thought was really cool was um, Dr. Jacobs brought up visualization. And for our dedicated listeners, they'll remember Cyrus Ramon Pattinson, the boxer from Great Britain, brought that up as one of the key ways to mentally prepare for a game. Just the concept of visualization and actually going out on the pitch, or in this case, the the cycling track, and actually seeing what you're going to conquer and seeing how you're going to do it. Guys, honestly, if students, people, and anyone listening to this podcast, I cannot stress this enough. Visualization and other tricks that you're about to hear in this podcast, apply them to your day-to-day life doesn't matter if you're an athlete, student, whatever, they work. It works. Yeah. What was really interesting about it, too, was we don't have an opportunity to talk enough about individual sports and individual yeah. athletes and the different techniques that can be applied for, for, for those guys. And, and that was one of the coolest things about what Dr. Jacobs talked about today is how individual sport athletes can benefit tremendously from mental fitness as well. Oh, yeah. And it's a um, velodrome. I think I'm saying that right. That is the arena that holds the uh, the track for the cyclists. Oh, yeah. It's called a velodrome. Yeah. So everything you'll hear today will help you 
inside the velodrome and outside the velodrome. <laughs> the velodrome and, uh, one, sounds pretty intense. One last thing I want to bring up before, before we get into this. Um, I was reading an article a few weeks ago in the New York Times of um, Michael Phelps' new documentary, The Weight of Gold. And in that documentary, he talks about how in the Olympics, uh, I may have mentioned this before, I apologize if so. In the Olympics, um, this was in 2008 or so, they would have a th like thousands, like one or two thousand, one, two, three thousand uh, Olympian athletes in one place at a time. And for those one, two, three thousand athletes, they would have two, maybe three sports psychologists. And I mean, the weight of golds. Um, I definitely recommend watching that. Wow. Um, I believe it's on HBO. And sheesh, man, uh, I was interesting. But yeah, there's honestly, guys, it's a great podcast, great interview. There's so much you can learn from this. So, totally. so much, yeah. Cue the music. And hey, I just want to say one, one more thing. So uh, yeah, I think one of the coolest things about it too, man, was uh, when Dr. Jacobs talked about the curriculum that he developed for those Olympic athletes, how he, he incorporated mindfulness, gratitude, confidence building exercises, you know, ways to, to sort of communicate both internally, you know, and with with others more effectively. And it, it sounded like he really had a lot of the, the same principles in his program that we created for our own program with Sports Psych MDs. Yeah, coming out soon. Um, we'll have that curriculum, our own Sports Psych MDs curriculum coming out very soon along with our website. But check us out currently on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those social media sites, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, you name it, we're on there. Um, Sports Psych MDs. Facebook. Are we on the dating apps? No. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have some connections there. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to episode 49 of Sports Psych MDs. Today, we have two very special guests who are no strangers to success. In his soon-to-be 40 years in practice, our first guest has provided the winning edge to youth, collegiate, professional, and Olympic athletes and teams. Notable athletes have attributed their success to his work, and one of them is here with us today. Our second guest represented USA in the 1984 Summer Olympics as a cyclist, where he won the gold medal in the 4,000-meter individual pursuit and silver medal in the 4,000 meter team pursuit. Everyone, please welcome doc Dr. Andrew Jacobs and Steve Hegg. How are you guys doing today? Great, nice to be here. Super, thank you. So before we start, we, got, uh, we, have, a, we have a common question for all our guests. What is, what's your life song? We'll start with you, Steve. You'll start with me? Oh, it would probably be a Len Lenny Kravitz American Woman. Oh. That's a, nice. All right. I like that. That is a good one. I haven't heard that in a while. Yeah. Dr. Jacobs? Born to Run. Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, classic. I love that. Oh. Nice. That's I buy, awesome. Yeah. I buy the Jersey Shore all the Springsteen. time. Springsteen. So we, we're always right by Asbury Park. Right? Uh, that's, where, that's, where that's, where that's a great choice. Yep. I'm going to have so, to listen to both those songs later. <laughs> oh, I mean, they're both great. Born to Run, classic. I love that. Um, so, again, thank you guys so much for being here. So just to begin, um, as mentioned, Dr. Jacobs, you've been working this, in the psychology field for nearly 40 years. First of all, congratulations on, your, on uh, approaching your 40th year milestone. That's a very big deal. 
my question to you is how has the psychology field and its perception from the general public changed from when you first started 40 years ago till now? Well, Ben, that's a great question. And, and when I started, um, just to give you a little background, I received my doctorate at the California School of Professional Psychology in San Diego, and it was a five-year, year-round program. In my second year, 1977, there was a class called sports psychology that I took, and five minutes into the class, it's like, this is what I want to do, because I've always been a tennis player, but I was one of those tennis players who choked under pressure. So this class, like, if I knew what the stuff I learned in this class when I was playing competitively, I would have been a heck of a lot better. So... I got involved with it then under Dr. Robert Neidifer is one of the, the truly founders of sports psychology in this country. And so we set up an internship at San Diego State, which is one of the first training programs in the country. And then when I moved home, I stopped at the Olympic, to, home to Kansas City. I stopped at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And we set up an interview for me with the assistant head of sports medicine. And this fellow uh, really didn't want to talk to me. He was busy. He wanted to go on a run. And so I got there, I was in a three-piece suit and I was all nervous because I'm just a newly graduate. And after like 10 minutes, he says, listen, we don't need any of you PhD types running around here telling us what's wrong with our athletes. And I drove back to Kansas City that day from Colorado Springs, determined to prove him wrong because I'm like, how, how can the assistant head of sports medicine at the Olympic team say something like that when the East Germans and the Russians were using, in addition to their performance-enhancing drugs, sports psychologists? And so I moved home and, and started to, my practice and I interviewed at the local colleges. One of the athletic directors at the local, one of the local colleges said he didn't believe in hocus pocus and witchcraft. And so when I started, sports psychology didn't exist, basically. And so from that point to, to today, now it's, it's, it's a very popular term. People are into the mental side of sports. Back then, people looked at it as you're weak if you have to do with your mind. And, my first job was at the University of Kansas with the track teams. And the two coaches who hired me, Bob Timmons, who's one of the greatest coaches ever in track and field, and Carla Coffey, the women's coach, took a flyer and took a chance using me. And it worked out tremendously. And, and since then, it's grown. But today, you have all kinds of people working in the field, from trained sports psychologists to mental, mental health people to people who aren't trained in mental health who call themselves sport, sports performance coaches and things like that. So there's a wide array of people doing this. And when I started, it was poo-pooed and now it's like the hot topic. Yeah. I, I, I kind of want to ask you a question based off that, Dr. Jacobs. You mentioned that there's specific individuals that'll specialize in kind of sports performance or performance psychology. Um, do you have a specific specialty that you practice within sports psychology? Um, are you someone who likes to focus more so on performance or someone that likes to focus on the, the individual and not just strictly performance? I do both, uh, Tori. What, what, I, what I do is my doctorate in clinical psychology with my specialty in sports psychology and performance enhancement. So when I work with someone, I don't just work with them in terms of their mental preparation for their golf game. I talk with them about who they are as a person and because that, that plays a role into what we are. And when I work with the Olympic Olympic team and Steve can, can validate all this force. Um, you know, I got to know these guys as people and how they ticked and what was going on with them individually. And that's, that's what helps me understand people. So when I can understand how somebody functions as a person, that's going to help me understand how they function as an athlete. Absolutely. And that's therefore also going to 
help be more helpful for them in the long run because athletes aren't just playing their sport 24 seven. They also have to go home. They have kids, they have relationships and so on and so forth. So uh, I really appreciate that you're able to do that. And, and speaking of, it sounds like you've developed great relationships with the individuals you worked with in the past. I know that you and um, Steve Haig, who's also with us today, you guys have known each other for what, almost 40 years. We met 1982. Steve, you take it from there. You can explain that. Well, yeah, we met 1982 at the uh, sports festival in Indianapolis, I believe it was. And um, we started working together then. And Dr. Jacobs, like you said, he kind of took an interest in trying to find out who we were, what made us tick. And, you know, he knew our idiosyncrasies and was able to probably coach us and guide us better just by uh, knowing what was inside of us a little bit better than probably we knew ourselves. Cause I know that it, in 1984 at the Olympics, I might've been 20 years old on my birth certificate, but I was probably really only 16, you know, maybe less. So he really helped uh, kind of form us and, uh, and bring these, these five or six misfits together. It was pretty awesome. I have a, I have a question for Dr. Jacobs actually. Um, so it sounds like you encountered a lot of um, like poo-pooers, as you, as you said. What, what was the driving force that kept motivating you to say that this is like an actual area, that this is like a legitimate area and there's something to be done in this field? Because, you know, like 30, 40 years ago, as you said, like it was just, it was young and an up and upcoming field. So what part of sports psychology stood out to you that made you realize this is something, this is not to be poo-pooed and I'm going to ignore what everyone else is saying? Uh, my father was a physician, and he was a gastroenterologist, very prominent gastroenterologist. And he told me once that his he, he had a debt to pay to society to help people save people's lives. And I sort of thought, oh, that's sort of corny. But then when I started getting into this, I started realizing what my job is, is to help people help themselves. And, and I get enjoyment out of helping people get better. Um, unfortunately, psychology, you know, I, I'll ask athletes on a scale from one to 10. First, I'll ask them to define, give me an example. Give me an example. What's self-confidence? Well, typically it's something, they'll say something related to believing in yourself. And I go, okay, well then on a scale of one to 10, one being low and 10 being high, I want you to tell me what your self-confidence is. And I'll take my hands, put them under my desk and guess what number they'll say. And you can't really measure confidence it's a feeling unfortunately when when you're dealing with this area of, of sport there are so many coaches and people involved in administrative positions who don't get it and you know they don't understand that having someone in our in a sports psychologist capacity is helpful rather than harmful a lot of coaches are threatened by people in my profession a lot of people are scared of people in my profession they don't want people, quote, getting into people's heads. I, I know there's one coach who uh, doesn't want me around the team. He'll send players to me. He doesn't want me around the team because he thinks it's a sign of weakness if guys come talk to me at the team. They can come talk to me away from there. And so there, there's a lot of people's perceptions of this aren't, aren't correct. And, and what I see my job is, is helping people help themselves. I mean, Steve, you can explain that because – we had a coach, Eddie Borisevich, who's defected from Poland in 1978, who understood this and was willing to have me around. Well, I was just going to say, when when Dr. Jacob showed up, uh, our our head coach, uh, Eddie B, was just kind of was kind of a, a trial, 
you know, he didn't really believe in Andy like he should have. And Andy did get into everybody's heads and, and, and figure out how to make them click and work. And, but Eddie was a traditional Eastern block coach and he just thought he could kind of beat it out of us, but Andy helped bring it out of us, you know? So it was kind of nice, but the two of them butted heads all the time because, uh, you know, it was new world, old world. And, and Eddie B would say, Hey, this Dr. Jacobs is BS guy. We don't need him. And, you know, so it was pretty funny to see the two of them in the, coaching together kind of how would you uh, describe the the difference the, the the coaching style of differences between them how would you how would you say it worked it worked for you in terms of both working together to help bring the best out of you as an athlete well i think it was the yin and yang the, the two of them were awesome together because eddie was so strong and so powerful overbearing powerful and andy was able to kind of soften it up and um and make it happen and let it come out because Eddie was so strong and Andy kind of softened him and, and, and also helped interpret what he was saying. We knew what he was saying, but Andy was like, you know, don't worry about it. He's just upset today. You know, we're going to be fine. And, and so we all got along great. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it took, it took a while, but you know, Eddie, Eddie was open to what I did or, or, I, or he wouldn't let me be there. Let's face it. Right, Steve. I mean, Eddie was a strong little yeah. guy. So he was one to do it. And then when he saw that the things we were doing were helpful, he was all for it. But, but Eddie also, like, you know, Steve said, he is an Eastern Bloc guy. And this is, this is my way. I do it my way. And your way is out the highway. I mean, that was just Eddie. So, right? Yeah, totally. And, and the, the techniques you were using, he, uh, he believed when he saw the results. But he, he didn't like, you know. He didn't like all the, the other stuff that went along with it, I don't think, as much. Yeah, and when, and when I started, um, so I, I interviewed in August 14, 1981 with the uh, assistant head of sports medicine, and then I got hired the following June of 82 in what was it then called the Elite Athlete Program. And it was a program where there were five sports designated as sports that had not done well in the Olympics. So they asked the each federation, sport federation, what they needed, and, the, and one of the coaches guy named Mark Hodges, who was with us, wanted to bring me a board, wanted a sports psychologist. So they had my name from driving through, and that's how I got involved. And so uh, I was one of the first five sports psychologists with the 84 Olympic team, specifically with the cycling team. And Dr. Nidifer worked with track and field, and man, I trained under. So, but there were five teams that had uh, sports psychologists, the 84, five Olympic uh, American teams that had sports psychologists. And we were very fortunate. We won nine medals and hadn't won any in 72 years. So it was That's tremendous. Incredible. And Steve won two of them. So, did it, did it make a big difference having the addition of those sports psychologists to those teams? Did it, did it make a dramatic difference in terms of performance? I, well, I'm a little bit biased. Uh, <laughs> I would say yes. But, 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 but in, in all seriousness, I, well, let Steve answer that. He's the athlete. <laughs> it worked. You know, I mean, I don't know what else to say. That's just, you know, we put in the, we did the time. I mean, and, there's results. It sounds like, and we had great coaches and great people be, around us, and it it all clicked. Nice, and it, it turned out for uh, you received a gold medal, and also a silver medal as well in the 1984 Summer Olympics. Yeah, gold and silver medal. It was it was awesome. Um, I got to plug in. I need some power, guys. Hang on a second. No worries. No worries. <laughs> And that was in the when the Olympics was in Los Angeles, I believe. Yes, correct. So on home soil. That must have been great. You know what? What was interesting about that was, 
the Olympics hadn't been in the United States in years. And so there was a tremendous amount of pressure on these athletes to do well. And especially our cyclists, because most of the team was from Southern California. So Mm. the pressures that they were under were extensive because uh, in addition to making the team, then we're in LA performing in LA. And then we had to deal with all kinds of issues like family members that wanted tickets or everyone wants to be around. And, And one of the things we did was we, we, sequestered the team in a hotel away from the Olympic Village where we it was just us and we'd go out and train and do things but we kept everybody apart uh from families and stuff like that because they really need to focus on their training and the, the pressures were really immense we also I don't know if Steve remembers this we had we had a uh uh meeting with the FBI uh because they were talking to us about Iranian terrorists training in Mexico and uh so there was there was that threat in the back of everybody's minds wow. too, and uh, in fact we had a team meeting about that, and it's actually when our when our team pursuit squad became a team because they all agreed on something after that, that uh, if we got kidnapped by terrorists they'd sacrifice me first, <laughs> they'd all go free. <laughs> <laughs> That's be- so you guys had beautiful team unity. It sounds like so. Uh- Dr. Jacobs, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about, it sounds like the programming for this, obviously a lot of preparation, probably years in advance for the actual Olympic Games. But um, by the time the Olympic Games comes around, you're still there with the team day to day in preparation as well? Yeah, I, I left uh, my Kansas City July 1st, 1984, and I was with the team for basically six and a half, seven weeks through the end of the Olympics. And uh live with them was, was part of the team. I mean, they, at that point, it was my third year with them. And I worked through 1988, actually up, up into the Seoul Olympics. And I'd also went with them to world championships in uh, Italy in 83, uh, or excuse me, Switzerland in 83, Italy in 85 and Colorado Springs in 80, 86. So I was part of the team. We had several people, our, our uh, exercise physiologist, Ed Burke, who's no longer with us, a wonderful man was very open-minded to having people around to help the cyclists with, with their bikes, with, with training. He did a lot, he brought a lot of different people in and the, the, you know, I like to say you can have two athletes who are physically the same. The one with a stronger mind will come out on top and essentially, you know, I mean, you can do all the training in the world physically, but if your mind's not there, it, it doesn't matter. And so we were fortunate enough that, uh, the coaches and the, and, the, and the team were open-minded to have me around and, and it worked well. Dr. Jacobs, who would you say your mentors and the, uh, those that inspired you to, to go into the field would be? Did you have mentors in the field of well, Bob Nidefer, who I trained under, uh, was, would be my mentor. I mean, that, I, the class I took, Introduction to Sports Psychology in 1977 in grad school, was his class. There were about eight of us in the class. He wrote a book called The Inner Athlete that was our textbook. And I went down to the beach after the great thing about San Diego was I got to go to the beach after class and hang out and read read my book. So I read his textbook, called him up that night and said, this is what I want to do. And, and Bob was my mentor, role model. He's the guy that, that he had already been involved in this. And uh, I also got to know Bruce Ogilvy, who's really the founder of sports psychology. Bruce, Bruce was up at San Diego State and would come down to San Diego for meetings. And uh, I spent a lot of time with Bruce as well. And, and so those, those two, Bob Nidefer and then Bruce Ogilvy, really had a significant impact on me. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. So um, just going on, to the net, going on to our next uh, topic, Steve, this is more for you. I'm curious, what prompted you 
to seek a sports psychologist? And like, what, what's, what prompted you to seek that area of help? And additionally, how much of your mental exercises and work with sports psychologists like Dr. Jacobs would you attribute to your success? And then on top of that, um, what was the reaction you got when you first started seeing a sports psychologist? Three-parter. Well, uh, like, did your friends, family, and the general public respond, or did you even tell them? It's a great question. Um, you know, Andy came when Andy came to us, we were, like he said, we were all a bunch of guys from California, and we were kind of stubborn and uh, kind of resisted him a little bit. Um, and it, we saw some of his work uh, really starting to help out some of the other athletes. And I think that's um, it's what kind of more when we started really paying more attention to Dr. Jacobs that maybe what he had really worked. And uh, we had two troublemakers in our class. And um, they, 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 the two worst ones, they didn't want to participate in any of the exercises. So they were a little bit disruptive. And I think they were probably four, four or five years older than I was at the time. So it was kind of a distraction to me, but you know, I heard what he said and saw the results when I started using the techniques. So um, I continued with it and uh, you know, the rest is, the rest is history, I guess, but it, uh, it really helped. Steve, which technique would you say was uh, most useful? Did, do you remember one in particular that stands out? Well, sure. It was visualization training that he taught us. And um, the Olympic Velodrome in, back then in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. it's right where the uh, soccer stadium is now at uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills. Right. And it faced uh, directly to the west. And so there was a headwind always going towards LAX. And then there was a little bit of a, Hit, uh, tailwind on the way back and so every night when I was in Colorado Springs I would imagine I would train in my mind I would ride laps on the velodrome into the headwind and back in the tailwind and so when we got there I was totally prepared for it you know it didn't even affect me it was like there was nothing there was no wind on the velodrome at all because he made us so ready he made us mentally so prepared for what we were going to do that it was it was automatic yeah, one of the things we did with that was, so I, I've been teaching relaxation visualization exercises since grad school. And uh, I learned about it from Dr. Nidefer and, and it's part of my repertoire, what I do with everybody. And, and we, I taught the team to do these things. And with the team pursuit squad, we had eight guys basically trying out for this team, but only four rode. And, and we got to the Olympics. There were the four main guys and then two alternates. And I had to deal with the two guys who were alternates because they wanted to ride and they didn't, they weren't going to get to ride. And back then the only guys who won medals were the guys who rode in the medal round. And so we had that whole issue with one of the guys who was real upset. He wasn't chosen to ride. He thought he should be on the team. And it's a real interesting story because there are 16 teams that qualify. Everyone goes out and rides eight, eight laps around, or eight, you know, they, they ride around the track. To, it's 12 laps, right, Steve? 12 laps. 12 laps, 12 laps around the, the track for a time and they took the top eight teams to the next round and our first ride now we're on experimental bikes that were forty thousand dollars a bike in fact steve's individual bike is in the smithsonian institute um, they, were, they were specially designed bikes with uh, small front wheels and, and solid rear disc wheels they were very experimentally designed well they weighed like 12 pounds steve and about how much they weighed yeah really yeah they were ridiculously lightweight wow. And there's no, you have to understand these guys are going about, what, 30 miles an hour around the track. There's about yep. two inches between the, the rear wheel on the first guy and the front wheel on the next guy. 
So you have four guys that starting next to each other, then they get in the line. Every half lap, the, lead, the guy in the lead rides up and lets the other three guys pass him because he's riding into the wind. So it's a precision event. It's a trust event. It's a communication event. So we're on these $40,000 bikes. Here we are at the Olympics. Everybody's yelling, USA, USA. We're about the third or fourth team of the 16 teams to go. And we ride a quarter of a lap, and one of the guy's rear wheels falls off his bike. The race gets stopped. And we talked about, but we had talked about in our preparation, the what if. I had, the, Steve, remember, we, we did a what if list. Oh, yeah. And they came up with everything that could possibly go wrong. So we were prepared for, so this is one of the things. What if we have a, a mechanical issue? So the race got stopped. A couple of races later, we got to race again, except, Steve, tell them how many riders got to go. Not four, but... But three, because you only need three to qualify. Yeah. And because the, origin, the lead rider was, it was a mechanical problem. We were trying to, we, we tried to pretend that it was an accident, but the commissaires, the judges all pointed to the fact that the bicycle wasn't properly put together. So they said, you can start again with those three guys over there. But he, he's not riding. So then we had to get on the track again. Go ahead, Andy. <laughs> yeah. So they have to go. So now it's three guys riding, which meant every guy had to ride in front one extra lap. And on the last lap, two of the, the other two guys besides Steve, their tires bumped. They crashed. And one guy bounced down the backstretch. They allowed us to have a crash. They said, you get one more try, and that's it. So either you qualify or you don't. So we talked about what happens if we crash. So I remember Steve was really, I think, pissed off would be a good way of putting it, that that happened. But, but we got it together. The three guys went out and rode. We qualified fifth fastest. No sooner did we ride fifth fastest that they announced the pairings for the quarterfinals, USA versus Denmark. Denmark's the fastest team in the world. So we got Pat, our rider, who was qualified back. Brent, the guy who'd, who'd gotten injured, was really hurting and he gave it everything he had and we ended up beating them by one one hundredth of a second brent fell off like steve said you only need three guys to finish so steve tell, tell them a little bit about that that's incredible yeah it's an incredible story just tell them tell them about how how that was because we had talked about being prepared but tell them about just the mindset that you guys had to have for that because otherwise it wouldn't work yeah well you know the thing was is that we trained for the team pursuit more than any event in the Olympics, that was the event we were going for because it was a chance that we had to win a medal. And so we did all this preparation uh, so much before pressure. the Olympics. What if this happens? What if that happens? And so we were totally ready for everything to happen. And it all did happen, but we didn't miss a beat yet. Andy Jacobs, I was so furious when they crashed. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like, hey, I got mine. I'm out of here because I'd won the day before. And that's when Eddie came to me and looked at me like your father. And he said, you will get on the start line and give a hundred percent. And I, I like, Oh shit. I, I, you know, I forgot that's what we're here for <laughs> for a minute. And so we got back on the start line and, you know, we beat the Danish team by that tiny bit. And, um, what was that, that feeling was like? really, well, it really catapulted us into this crazy, uh, strength that you know we can do anything it was the one of you know it's the magic of the olympics that uh these people that aren't supposed to win find this energy to, you know do extraordinary uh, you know ordinary people do extraordinary things at the olympics and that might have been one of those moments yeah, yeah. and and i think absolutely we talk about that all the time that resilience yes yeah, yeah exactly and and the, what's 
which I think that's even a, 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 a better part of this was what happened the next day because the next day then we went back to the hotel and Brent, the guy who crashed, couldn't ride. He could barely move. His back was a giant strawberry. I mean, he, he lost all his skin on his back. And so in 1984, the only people who won medals were the people who wrote, competed in the medal round. So Brent gave up his spot to Dave Grills, the first alternate. And I think it's fair to say the two of them didn't always see eye to eye on things, right, Steve? So, um, you know, it was it was interesting because Brent gave up his spot for Dave. Wow. And Dave went out and rode, and in the semifinals, we went against the West Germans, the defending world champions, and we we caught them and beat them, and then we made it to the finals. And in the finals against Australia, Dave's pedal strap stripped, just took him out of the pedal, fell off his bike, and we had three guys against four. We got second place. But we, we probably would have won the gold medal had that not happened. But at one point in the race, actually, we caught the Australians, but then three guys against four is just hard to do. Right. And, but we were still winners. And that's the whole thing for me was that we won a silver medal. Our goal before the Olympics was to materialistically break the American record, which we did, win a medal. Yeah. But more importantly, be a team, stay together, communicate, mm -hmm. get along, overcome adversity. Right, Steve? Would, would you agree with all that? Yeah, it sounds like you guys definitely overachieved. Um, and, and, you know, I think we can attribute a lot of that to the addition of a, a mental fitness program, you know, where the, the, the sports psychology and the mindfulness and, you know, those different, you know, gratitude exercises could really take over and, uh, you know, become like a resilience training. Yeah, I mean, back then it wasn't called mindfulness. Mind, that, that term didn't really exist back then. It, you know, that's really come into, into popularity what the last three or four years more, more, more than ever. But back then it was, it, we talked about visualization and, you know, that term wasn't even used. That was becoming a new term. And in my graduate research uh, for my doctoral dissertation where I studied the personality characteristics of jockeys, I, I did all the research and at that time, in the late 70s, there was virtually nothing in this country on sports psychology, but it was all from Europe and Eastern Europe. And visualization was a huge component of what the Russians and East Germans and the other Eastern European countries did with their athletes. It's incredible. So it sounds like you had to um, kind of reach far and wide to kind of gather all these different techniques that other countries and places have been using and kind of using that to create your own program. Yes. I mean, it... it when I first started working um, in Kansas City after I moved home from grad school, like I said, I, I was, got hired by the track teams at the University of Kansas for $5 a day, one day a week. And uh, that was all they had, but I was willing to do it. And I applied all these same things with those athletes. And they, they were, at, at first, they're like, well, who is this guy? What's this about? And uh, the team really got involved. And I'm still to this day friendly with a lot of those guys on that, on that, those teams because they believed in it and, and they saw it work. And um, it, it was all about confidence, but pre I, I talk about four key things, preparation, focus, attitude, and confidence. I talk about a lot of things, but those are the, the key ones. Preparation is how you get ready mentally, physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, nutritionally. Focus is about what you concentrate on and what are the distractions that get in the way? How do you approach those? There are three kinds of attitudes, positive, negative, and realistic. I always want to try and have a positive, realistic thing. And with Steve, with the cyclist, it was, we've got to be positive. We've got to be realistic. Problems are going to happen. How are we going to deal with it? 
then that takes us to the foundation of everything confidence right you know the ability to believe in yourself and what you do absolutely no that's great um and, and in terms of this visualization uh technique and, and the exercises you developed around that what would you say the most important component is you know there's a lot of different components and i'm sure there's one that probably makes the biggest difference well, let me, let me answer that and I'll have Steve comment on it because he's the athlete. So, so the, the exercise I teach people has four parts. It's you lie down in an area you won't be disturbed. And then you, you focus on a spot above you and I can't slow it from one to five and you close your eyes and just focus on your breathing to slow things down and calm yourself down. Then I take you through a progressive muscle relaxation exercise, flexing your muscles from your head to your feet one section at a time and in in coordination with your breathing so you learn to relax and that does two things it relaxes you at that moment mm -hmm. but it also makes you aware of tension when you're competing and then um the next part's a confidence building section and what i do is i have the athlete imagine themselves going on a beach going behind the golden door on the beach in the most positive confident place they've ever been and i have a, the exercise i've I designed have music playing so they'll open up this door and go into this place feeling positive and confident about themselves stay there for a while and then they'll leave there feeling positive. Now they're physically relaxed, they're mentally relaxed, and now they'll visualize themselves going out to their athletic event, performing to their potential, doing their best. They don't talk about winning or losing. They just talk about performing to your potential and doing your best. They'll visualize themselves doing that successfully, positively, confidently. And then I have them go back to the beach, and I count back five to one, they wake up. So I think those components oh, wow. all together, and, and, and that's what I've taught athletes forever. Um, I mean, Steve, wouldn't you agree? that? I mean, I know you did that all the time. Yeah, it was the, the <laughs> it seems like just yesterday that uh, was there with Dr. Jacobs in Colorado Springs learning that technique about, you know, going through the door to the beach, relaxing, and then him counting from five to one and coming back out of it. Uh, I still use those techniques today when I have stress in my life to, uh, to get to sleep. Um, so it's a tool that I've used for the last almost 40 years now. Yeah, they're on my website. People can get them on my website, but they're, they're actual exercises that in, incorporated the music in the background that get them to relax. And then we have music, the visualization music is more, I think, in a lively music to get them pumped up and bit, bit yet focused. Yeah, hey, Dr. Jacobs, would you, would you mind sharing your, your website with us? Uh, our, our, our listeners, I'm sure, would love to visit. Sure, it's winnersunlimited.com, W-I-N-N-E-R-S unlimited.com. Great, and that, that visualization technique is, like you said, it's so much more than just visualization. You have progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing, and so much more. So you're incorporating a lot within that, that program. So I'm, I'm, I appreciate the fact that you're able to explain that to us today. Man, I, I just... I think you guys working together in that at the Olympics, that's such a unique environment, a unique situation. It sounds like it's a team sport, but also an individual sport where, like you mentioned, if, if one person doesn't participate in that last race, they don't even get a medal. Um, there's extreme selflessness and, and unity on that team. So huge. I'm just curious as to, um, and I guess both of you can answer this question, but I guess Steve at first, it looks like you, you're someone who enjoys like, cycling and also i think i read downhill skiing yep uh, you you like these like high intensity uh, i guess more so individual sports but also you can compete and as a team as well uh what drew you to those types of sports well i grew up believing i was going to be a world cup uh downhill ski racer and an olympian and it wasn't until i started using a bicycle for cross training that i became a better cyclist than i was a skier 
So I transitioned from uh, downhill ski racing to uh, bicycle racing for the Olympics. And it transitioned happened pretty much like in two and a half years that uh, I went from, you know, ski racing, uh, skiing 180 days a year to, uh, you know, then cycling right after that. So initially I thought I was going to be a world-class ski racer. <laughs> You know, Steve, that's, uh, that's so cool. And, and as, you know, psychiatrists and you know, people in mental health, we, we do care a lot about transitions, you know, and helping people get through transitions in their lives. And, um, you know, that's, that's an interesting transition, you know, going from skiing to, to cycling. Um, what would you say the, the most important thing that you needed to figure out was to make that transition successfully? That's kind of funny because after I realized I wasn't going to go to the Winter Olympics, uh, I think you might remember, maybe you don't, but uh, Bill Johnson won the Olympic downhill in Sarajevo in 1984. And that provided me with this extra motivation to to uh, train harder, train smarter, be the first guy in bed, the first guy up, because uh, the year previous to that, I had I beat him in the national championship, and I thought I was going to go to Sarajevo. So I was really upset. And so... Um, I just, I had to go all in for the cycling thing because I really wanted that gold medal, you know? So um, I kind of felt like it was taken away from me. So this was when I kind of got back. Steve, I have a, I have a question that uh, Dr. Jacobs, you can chime in too. Um, it's like a very simple question, but I think a lot of our listeners will appreciate it. How do you get over that when, when, you, when you run into a wall? You know, like a lot of runners, I'm sure cyclists experience this too. They hit a wall like either midway or three quarters through their race. How do you get over that? Well, there's, there's a lot of things that get involved in, in training. And competing is a result of what you, you go through in your training, psychologically as well as physiologically. And so one of the things I know with, the, with cycling, and, and I ran for 40 years. I'm not an Olympian by any sense of the imagination, but I, but I ran probably about 90 races myself. And half marathons and things like that and, and yet yeah, you hit that wall so part of it's in your training how you how you're going to approach that mentally when that happens how do you cope with it how do you react with it how do you respond to it and rather than giving into it you have to have a game plan to deal with that there was a, a race walker i worked with years ago who became an olympian and, and that was something we had to work through was the pain uh when she'd be about three-fourths of the way through a race it would always hit her right about there she'd hit that wall physiologically and so we came up with a game plan mentally on when she felt that, how she was going to attack it. You know, there's, there's two ways to address pain. You can associate with it or dissociate with it when you're competing in an endurance event. And when you associate with it, you get in touch with it, and you, you're hurting because you're training hard. You're training hard because you want to go better. So the more you hurt, the faster you go, the faster you go, the quicker you get done. Steve can comment on that. The other is dissociating, which is when you start to feel that pain. I know with a lot of swimmers, that are like swimming the mile, we'll talk about every every lap is building a 66-room house. And every lap you swim is another another room in the house and get, get your mind off the pain and focus on that. So there are different ways to cope with that. I mean, Steve, what would you say? Well, the thing is, is that we were, again, we were so prepared for my event and it's like running the mile. It's only four and a half minutes. So there's no time to hit the wall when you're doing it. Um, so I was just prepared to, you know, to suffer for those four and a half minutes. Uh, it, later in life, when I transitioned to riding the road and the road cycling, yeah, it's just, unfortunately, it's just one of those things you just have to deal with. And, um, you know, you kind of have to go into the Muhammad Ali 
mowed and rope a dope and hide in the field and rehydrate, re get some good nutrition maybe and see if you can't ride through it. But in cycling, it's when you hit the wall, most of the time you're, you're just going to go out the back of the field. So I really appreciate the emphasis on preparation and preparing for these worst case scenarios. And if you're able to prepare for all these things, when they, when you do hit that wall or you, you hit your the pedal falls off or the, the wheel falls off, you've already prepared for it. So you're not, you're going to just go back to your practice and preparation and that's going to lead you to being able to overcome that versus having, allowing the emotions to get in and kind of having that snowball effect. If I, if I can, um, one of the uh, athletes I've worked with for years is uh, Tom Flash Gordon, who pitched for 20 years in the major leagues. His uh, son, D. Gordon, plays for the Mariners, and his younger son, Nick, is in the Twins minor leagues. And um, Tom had the record for 54 consecutive saves. And this is all public knowledge, so I can share it. He's, he's been on my radio show countless times talking about it. But I had him write on the bill of his cap, one game at a time, one inning at a time, one pitch at a time, keep it simple. Kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. yeah. And just try to come up with a plan to, to focus on what you're doing. And then and that's the whole thing. And like, you know, Steve had to focus on what he was doing. And, you know, it was one of those types of things where the more you plan ahead and just focus on yourself, the better off you're going to be. That, that kind of relates to, do you talk often about getting into the flow state or do your athletes ever talk about that? It sounds kind of what, when you just focus on what you can control and you, you put in all the practice and preparation, by the time you get there, you just enter into this flow state where you're. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a good question for Steve to answer. Cause when he was riding the individual pursuit, I mean, he's riding around that track 12 laps and he's just got to get into that mindset, right? Steve, where you got to just, just focus on that. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. You, you get into that state of mind and you're somehow you're able to get, remove the pain and concentrate on, you know, at the time where we, our coach was standing there and he would give us a signal if we were going too fast or too slow. So, you know, I got into that state that you're talking about and just totally emerged myself into the pain and just kept riding. And, it, and again, it was the, the preparation, I guess. Steve, how long did it take for you to, to, to get this technique down to where it became more automatic? It, um, well, like I said, I'd only been cycling for about two and a half years. And uh, I was every time I got on my bike, I was just going all out. It seemed like, so it was, this event was built for me. And, um, it it probably wasn't until after the Olympic trials when I was actually on the Olympic team that we were really focusing on just proper pedaling technique and then really trying to get into the, that euphoric kind of thing. And, um, when, by the time we came to the Olympics again, it just, it, all the pieces came together. It was just, like uh, Dr. Jacob said, building this house. Yeah, euphoria. That, that's when you start to actually enjoy oh, it, right? Yeah. The euphoria. Yeah, describe. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, this pain level that you're able to push yourself through. And it's so painful, it's actually kind of funny, you know? I mean, it's like, how can you do this to yourself? Yeah. But you've been practicing for years to do it, so. And elite-level athletes train to put themselves in that mindset and in that physical state. They They – they are ready for that. The ones that succeed are, are, are the ones they prepare for that and acknowledge that and recognize that. And that allows them to do. That. Yeah. It's sort of, to me, it feels like it probably would take, you know, a good six months of consecutive training to get to a point of proficiency. where You're able to say, okay, 
yeah, I really have this technique down. Is it is that is that right, or would you say it, it takes a little bit longer than that? I think it's an individual type of thing. I mean, uh, you know, it, 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 everybody's different with how they learn and acquire things, and some people some people it, it pick it up a lot quicker. It's just a natural thing for them, and some have to fight it with various demons in their head or things that go on that that, that get in the way. So it just depends. It's an individual. If you if, if you come across a, a client or an athlete that, that has a lot of those demons, but you know their talent is, you know, is great enough that you want to work with them, um, are there kind of other things that, that you might need to do to, to kind of get them up to speed? When, whenever I work with anybody, I try to get to know them as a person first. And I want to know, I have uh, five lists. I ask, ask people to write down for me their goals, strengths, weaknesses, fears, and distractions. And then there's a personality test I like to give to people to understand their personality a little bit. And so I, I want to get to know why are they why are they coming to talk to me first of all? What are their goals here? What are their goals as an athlete or individually, whatever they're coming in for? What do they want to accomplish? When I work with the team, it's the same thing. What you know, what do we want to do? Well, you know, to every team, we want to win a championship, wanna to, wanna to win. Okay, well, what's winning mean? I just did a radio show last week. Does winning mean coming in first place or does it mean doing your best? I, I always talk about focusing on effort versus focusing on results. If you focus on effort, you have a greater chance for the results to happen. If you focus on the results, things get in the way. So to get into that flow state, that free thinking, where the, the distractions, the obstacles, the barriers get out of the way, you have to, to learn to identify all that stuff. And, and Steve Haig is a great example of that because he, he was willing to do that. And he did that, which, which uh, a lot, he won the individual pursuit, which before the team pursuit, he mentioned he got the gold medal in that. And he broke the world record in that. And uh, how many rides did you have? Six in that? Like a qualifying ride? Yeah. Then five rounds. Qualifying ride and then five yeah. rounds. And, I mean, what he did was truly amazing. And then he had to come back. And he'll always be angry at me for this uh, because he won the gold medal. Now, back back in those the Olympics uh, in in Los Angeles, 1984, if you won a gold medal back then, the Tonight Show was hosted by Johnny Carson, and uh, he wanted everybody to come be on his show. So he wanted Steve and me to come be in his show. They invited him and me to go be on the show, and I'm like, no, you can't go. We got the Team Pursuit race the next day, so. <laughs> like, we win the team pursuit. We can all go on, and then we got silver, and we didn't go. So he'll always hold that against. Oh, uh, remember that? Yeah, you you oh took my, my opportunity. Here's Johnny. <laughs> oh no! Well, I love hearing your guys' banter between the two of you because it's. I think it just speaks to the fact that when you guys worked together, it wasn't just about the Olympics. It wasn't just about winning a race. It was, it was much more than that. So I just, I, I'm, I'm enjoying having you guys on the show today. Definitely. Thank you. It's just been a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, well, if I can say this, you know, I've been very lucky to have relationships with a lot of people like Steve and then Steve's constantly one of the, you know, people at the top of the list of people I've known over the years and we've stayed in touch and uh, you know, touch base quite a bit and whenever I'm out in, in LA I try to see him and catch up and you know he, he's a quality person he's a good man he, he's he's got a son he's raising he's done a great job with himself as a person and, and you know it, it's it's not easy when you're a teenager and you achieve the pinnacle of success in, in your sport in the Olympics 
And then you want to, you know, you want to keep doing that for a while. And then, but eventually it's going to stop and then you have to move on in life and you have to adjust. And, and for years I've talked about the whole importance of mental you know, athletes are people. Um, I, I had the privilege of being the first, uh, one of the first sports psychologists in major league baseball with the Kansas City Royals in 1990. I mean, Tori, you asked me about my, and Ben, you asked me about when I started, um, not long after I moved home in Kansas City in, in the fall of 1981, uh, I interviewed with the Kansas City Royals. And John Sherholz was the general manager, one of the greatest general managers in baseball. And he told me, uh, I'm not going to hire you right now. The owner of the team had uh, wanted me to, to interview a personal friend who told John Sherholz he wanted to meet me. So I went out and met with him. And he said, I'm not going to hire you right now because you, you've just gotten some experience in grad school. Go get some experience and stay in touch. Well, eight years later, 1989, he called me one day and started referring some individual players to me. And I saw eight players privately that year and then hired me the next year to work full time with the team. And um, I worked just that one year. And then I worked again with the Royals for several years later, but I've had baseball players work for me forever. And, you know, John Sherrill's wanted to take a chance, just like Eddie B took a chance, just like Bob Timmons, the coach at KU took a chance. Um, but it's got to be done the right way and it's got to be with the right people. Unfortunately, I've, I've had the experience enough uh, in these 40 years to have worked with so many great people. I, I could name so many people. I'd like to mention the soccer coach named Rick Benbent, the Kansas City Comets indoor soccer team I worked with back in the early 80s. Uh, the owner, David Schoenstatt, met me and wanted me to work and hired me on, on Christmas Eve 1984. And the next day, the head coach, Pat McBride, resigned and Rick Benbent, the assistant coach, became the head coach. And he met me that day and he said, okay, sure, let's get started. So Rick took a chance and I worked with him with the Comets and then a professional or collegially when he coached at the University of Missouri, Kansas City for years. And there've been a lot of people along the way who have been open-minded to sports psychology, but there are also a lot of people who still to this day don't believe in it. And it's unfortunate because the, the you know, I think we're seeing now with, with Michael Phelps talking about his depression and his addiction issues, we're, with Kevin Love with his anxiety attack that he had in the game. You've got a number of professional athletes who are talking about mental health. I and mean, LeBron James does ads for, you know, a, a, an app about relaxation. So you're, yeah, calm. Yeah, That's right. We're talking you're about seeing that. this now. It's, it's and sucks. when I started, it, people told me what I was full of. Okay. And yet there were some people <laughs> who took a chance with this. And Steve Hegg's a great example of when, when people take a chance and, and, are willing to, to give it a try, what can happen? Absolutely. No, it's really great. But, you know, I think it's at a certain point along the way, it, it was no longer about taking a chance. You know, I think they, they had seen the results and it seemed like, you know, never a guarantee, but you know, certainly something that they could benefit from. And it sounds like a, a lot of teams and organizations and athletes have, uh, which is why today it's, you know, I think becoming an extremely widely accepted and embraced part of the athletes program. You know, the athletes train and you know what it what it takes to, to become an elite athlete. And it has to include a mental fitness, sports psychology, psychiatry kind of program. And we're seeing that and it's really tremendous. It's really great. And you know, we're we're fortunate to have one of the pioneers here with us today and, and you know a former world record holder. Uh, it's just it's just really tremendous. You mentioned earlier that uh, you know the athletes do kind of have this um, this period of, of their careers that unfortunately tends to be a little shorter than the rest of us, you know, because it's a lot of physical wear and tear on the body. 
Um, and ultimately, they're going to have to transition to another career, especially if they're already, you know, only in their 30s, 40s, and they want to continue to work. Um, to what extent can sports psychology and psychiatry uh, aid and assist an athlete in making some of those transitions? Well, Armin, one of the, one of the words I talk about all the time is balance. And, and how can you have balance in your life? And what does that mean? You know, when you're competing, you've got to focus on certain things. And then when your competitive life ends and you transition into quote unquote normal life, outside of being a competitive athlete, it's an adjustment. And it's an adjustment because a competitive athlete's training schedule, their training regimen, their mindset has to be really focused on that goal. And then as they make that adjustment, there is, it's a big change. And it's a change in, in how they think, how they function, and if they're in a relationship, how that works. I and mean, there's 85% of professional athletes that three years of retirement are divorced. And it's not only because of the athletes, it's because their spouses, uh, you know, typically are on their own raising the kids. And now here's this adult male or female home all the time who wants attention. And, they, and they're like, well, I've got to get the kids to school. I can't spend that time with you. I mean, I mean, Steve continued to ride for a long time after the Olympics, and he's coached. He's been, and, he, and he, you're still involved in cycling, right, Steve? Yeah, a little bit, but yeah, right after the Olympics, you know, I raced for probably another 16 years, and then I had a coaching business, and then I had my own pro cycling team. Uh, so that's it was kind of the uh, what some of the cyclists do at the end of their career. Yeah. Now, it sounds like, you know, being able to stay connected was really important for you. Did you have any teammates that, that went on to different types of careers after a cycling? Well, yeah, you know, they, they scattered to the wind, all points to the globe. You know, one guy's building fences for a living. Um, one guy's a carpenter. You know, it just uh, work that they love to do. Uh, one guy is an investment banker. Uh, so they've done everything. Yeah, and definitely those mental fitness techniques we know could help guys do well, not just in sports, but also beyond sports as well, off the, off the, uh, the track and, you know, off the field and so forth. So. Yeah, those techniques, the techniques that we learned are tools for a lifetime. So be, before we let you guys go, um, our, my last question to both of you, and Dr. Jacobs, you kind of alluded to this, is um, what do you think mental health, mental health awareness and sports psychology, where do you think it's going? Where do you see, where do you see that area in the next five, 10, 15 years? Steve, you start with that first. <laughs> well, I mean, it's changed so much in the last 40 years, like Dr. Jacobs says that, you know, he wasn't even welcome kind of 40 years ago. And now, you know, now even these kids, these little junior golfers are already seeing sports psychologists and, and mental health people. So I can think that it's just going to be more and more and more, you're going to see athletes with a, a professional person like that helping them out all the time. Yeah, I, I think the future growth in this field is wide open, and there's a real need for it. And there's a, there's a need for trained, competent, licensed professional people to work in this. I mean, the, the, the field of mental health and sports has a wide array of people involved in it now. You've got all kinds of people from... Uh, medical people, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists to social workers, uh, all the way down to, you know, life coaches. And you have all these people who are mental coaches who don't have any psychological training. So there are a lot of people out there who shouldn't be doing this, quite frankly. 
um, because they see it as a hot thing, something to get involved in. I've met a lot of these people along the way. And in order to, to get licensed as, as both of you, as, as Armin and Tori, both of you know, as, as psychiatrists, it's, it's a long haul. And so, and as a psychologist now, if you call yourself a psychologist, you have to have a doctorate, whether it's a PhD or a PsyD. So it's a lot of training. So a lot of people don't want to do that and they want to take the shortcut. So there are, there's, there are a lot of people getting involved in this. They're seeing the excitement. Hey, it's fun to work with athletes. It's fun to be in all these, you know, I, I, I work with the Kansas City Royals a number of years. I was with the team full time. I have my own locker, the whole thing. Yeah, it's fun to be around healthy, active people. And so a lot of people want to get involved in that, but, but you also have to know what you're doing or else it, it doesn't work. Yeah. And I think you, you, it sounds like you always keep it in perspective. You're there to help the individual and, and also hope to help them with their performance as well. But mostly it's for the individual. Yeah. I mean, my, my goal is, is if I, I it, it doesn't have to be an Olympian. I, I and someone asked me once, what's the age disparity of people you've had in your office? And I had a, an eight-year-old gymnast came in with a list of uh, page and a half list of goals. Oh eight-year-old gymnast. <laughs> and she was the youngest. And then the oldest was an 82-year-old female golfer. And when I asked her why she was coming in, she said, quite frankly, because my putting <laughs> sucks. <laughs> so does mine. So does mine. And, uh, and, and it did. And she learned how to relax and visualize and started to do a lot better. So... Yeah, it's just perfect. <laughs> Great. All right. Would you say that there? I'm, uh, sure, I'm not sure Steve could beat her, but maybe he could. <laughs> we'll have to see. No, I doubt it. <laughs> Would you say there are, are, are certain sports that that really benefit uh, the most from some of those uh, visualization and kind of mentalization techniques you teach? Well, I think it's applicable to everything. I think individual sports tend to individual athletes who who spend more self like like Steve wrote and a team event and an individual event. So I think for the individual pursuit, Steve, didn't that really help you maybe a little more? I mean, it helped in the team pursuit, but the individual, because you, it was all about you. Yeah, well, it, it was yeah, all about me, and then it was all about my three other teammates. So it was, it was, it didn't change too much, but the, the dynamic of having the teammates uh, definitely changed it. But it, it was still the same techniques and tools. Yeah, but you had to. But when you're when you're like a golfer or a tennis player or a, a, a road cyclist or a, you know a ping pong player, a bowler, um, an archer, archer or a riflery, when, when it's an individual sport, you know you can get. I always tell people you need to be selfish. Don't be a selfish person, but be a selfish athlete. And, I've never and heard that before. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I said I've never heard that you were I was selfish before, but now that you mention it, maybe I heard it a, a couple times. But um, but no, no in, in a positive against, way. In a positive way, when yeah, you, yeah, you against the clock, you know, it's it's everything. It's all about you, you know, and getting it done. Yeah, and and I mean, I worked for years with an, an NFL place kicker who, when he retired, was just the most, most accurate kicker in football history, and he kicked more field goals than anybody in football when he retired back in the '90s, and. Our whole focus, when you're out there kicking, it's all about you. It's not about the 80,000 people in the stands or everybody else. It's just about what you have to do. And you've got to be selfish in a, in a constructive way, not a destructive way. Correct. I love that. That's good stuff. All right. Well, I really appreciate both of you coming on the show today. Uh, Dr. Andrew Jacobs and Steve Hegg. It's, it's been a pleasure. Um, so, Dr. Jacobs, winnersunlimited.com is your website. Uh, you also have 
you're on a radio show, which also is a podcast as well. So if you want to tell our listeners about that. Right. Right. My show, I, I'll, uh, in my 29th year, consecutive year on the radio, I'm in live in Kansas City. Great. It's at uh, 810whb.com is the website. And uh, you can listen. It's live every Sunday morning from 6 to 7 a.m. on uh, 810whb. It's, it's uh, heard nationally. You can hear it nationally. In fact, this morning was our, our show. We had a caller from Kentucky who is a high school special teams coach who actually called before the show even started, wanted to get on and talk about things. So uh, we take, I take calls from all over the place. Then our shows are podcasted on my website and on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes as well. It's called the uh, Dr. Andrew Jacobs Sports Psychology Hour. Love it. Steve Steve Hag has been a guest before (laughs) on the show. Right on. All right. Right on. And uh, thank you so much. (laughs) been fun i've learned an incredible amount i think our listeners are going to learn so much like which is a wealth of knowledge it's it's so applicable too very relatable i think everyone can take one or two if not more things away from this podcast and uh you know apply it to their day-to-day life thank you guys a lot my pleasure well thank you very much for having me yeah thank you all right be well guys thank you thank you so much okay thank you Bye. Take care, guys. Thanks for being with us. You too. Thank you.